Hello, thank you for visiting the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, feel free to visit our audio archive at vineyardcampbellsville.org or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And now here is this week's message brought to you by Senior Pastor Adam Russell. Hey, we are the third week in our series here at the Vineyard called Coming Home. Coming home would have been the fourth week, except we had to cancel because it was a water flood last week, right? Yeah, we had to cancel church because we didn't have water in the building, which is like the lamest thing ever. Last Sunday, we actually get here, and I turn the water on, and it goes, and then one drop comes out. Andrew and I talk, and then we cancel church, and on the way home, River tells me, he says, Dad, that was the lamest thing ever, you know? I'm like, what do you mean? He says, Dad, there are people literally meeting in caves this morning, and we just canceled because we don't have water. I said, son, this is America. <laughs> I mean, we, can't, we can only wa- love and worship Jesus to the extent that our city municipalities allow us to do that, son. Don't you understand anything? That's actually not true. Okay, anyway, this is the third message in a series called Coming Home. And this is a series in which we are talking about our lives being a spiritual journey. Like a spiritual journey. One of the things I told you a couple weeks ago, um, one of the things that I just woke up to, like literally five months ago, was that one of the most consistent, and I would even say one of the main controlling narratives inside the Bible story, I speak for a living, is this idea that people have a home, they leave home, and then they come back. No, it is consistent. It is all the way from Genesis to Revelation. So right there in the Garden of Eden, you have Adam and Eve, and they, they screw a few things up, and then what, what ends up happening there? They have, to, they have to leave home. And so from the, from the very moment that Adam and Eve leave home, one way of understanding the scriptural narrative is that it's an arc of getting back to Eden. That's what the whole thing is. You, you have a home, you leave home, and then you, then you get back home. And it is over and over and over. And I won't go over that again, but I just want to emphasize, you can barely open up the scriptures without seeing this pattern. And so one of the things that I've become convinced is that the scripture keeps telling this story so often that it's trying to hold before us an image for our own life with God or our, for our own life with Jesus. There's this sense in which uh, we come to faith and when you come to faith, that initial experience becomes a home of sorts. Or maybe you grew up in a home, however you want to understand this. I think this works on many layers. And then after you come to faith, you, you, you have a home. And it's where you are named. It's where you're born. All these things come on you. You get identity. It comes from Jesus. But then at a certain point of walking with Jesus and living your life with God, you will leave your home. So there's this sense in which our lives with God are supposed to be evolutionary. Um, if, If I can use that word in church and not get stoned. There's this sense in which who you are now in God should not be the same person that you are in 20 years. That isn't to say that you throw all the foundations away. That's not it. It's just that you realize there's gaps in your faith, or there's holes, or there's things you didn't see. And so you go through an evolution. You you, you molt. You get a new skin. You, you develop. You leave home. 
And when you leave home, things happen to you that change you, shape you, form you, and then you go back home, and when you go back, you're not the same person. Does that make sense? And so a couple weeks ago, uh, Andrew preached a great message on Jacob. And what does Jacob do? Jacob leaves home, right? And all these crazy things happen to him when he's at Laban's house, and then he comes back home. This is the picture of your life and my life. I hope that if you've been a follower of Jesus for a while, you're not the same person that you used to. And I want to tell you that if you keep following Jesus, it's going to keep changing. We're on a journey. So I want to talk to you a little bit this morning, and I want to share with you for a bit out of the life of Joseph. And I screwed some stuff up this morning on my little presentation software. I gave them the wrong one, so I don't have one. For you this morning, I've just got this lovely picture. Isn't it great? Here's what I want to do. Uh, I just want to tell you the story of Joseph. Can we do that? Can we go into storytelling mode? We're actually not even going... We're going to read out of the scriptures one brief moment this morning. I hope that that would be legal. Can I just tell you the story? Yeah, we're just going to go in storyteller mode here for a minute. I think most of us know it, but there's something about telling the story. It's just got power with it. So, here's the story of Joseph. You can't really even start with Joseph, I guess is the main thing I have to say first. You have to start all the way back with Abraham. So God calls Abraham says, leave your mom and your dad. Leave your home, right? And go to a land I'll show you. Abraham finally has some sons. Uh, has one son that wasn't the son of promise. Has another son that was the son of promise. And that son was Isaac. Isaac eventually finds a wife. Has some kids. And one of those two sons happens to be Jacob, who is the younger, his older brother is the woodsman Esau. And at a certain point, Jacob, also a son of promise, goes out, has a wife, and creates a family. Now, Jacob has a lot of sons. He doesn't just have a couple. He's got a bunch. In fact, one of the things we learn from the Bible is that Jacob has a dozen sons. But his favorite son was his 11th born, and that was Joseph. And the reason Joseph was his favorite son is because Joseph was the firstborn son to one of his two wives, and it was the one that he loved. So Jacob had a couple wives, and there was one wife that he was like, well, and then there's this other wife that he was super into, right? Some of us are offended by that story. I don't know what to say. It's just in the Bible. There was a wife. He didn't like her very much. There's another wife that he liked very much. And his firstborn son from the wife that he loved very much was Joseph. And of all of his sons, Joseph was his favorite son. And what he did, because he loved him so much, is gave him a coat. And I love this picture. I love this symbol or this image. So Jacob gives Joseph a coat. And it's a coat of many colors. Maybe you heard Dolly Parton sing about that at some point. You did if you grew up in my house. Anyway... And I love the picture because what it shows us is essentially the coat symbolized his father's love, right? It was an outward expression of his father's love on him. And this is in a day when there weren't many clothes. People didn't have closets full of clothes like you and I do. Even the poorest person in here has lots of clothes. You think you don't, but you actually do. Those years, all those years ago, people had maybe one change of clothes and his father goes out and gives his favorite son an amazing coat and had many colors. And so there's this sense in which it's a symbol of his love because now it's something that everyone else can see. And so when you saw Joseph, you see this amazing coat. Where'd you get that? My dad gave it to me. So it's a symbol of his love, but then it's also a symbol that's 
to Joseph. It's an outward symbol to everybody else, but it's also a symbol to Joseph because it's a coat. You put it on. You wrap it around you. It keeps you warm. covers your heart. There's a sense in which, there's a sense in which Jacob's embrace was fully realized in the coat that Joseph put on. Anyway, Joseph has this coat. And all of his brothers are jealous. All of his brothers are jealous. And one of the reasons that they're jealous is because of the way that his father treats him. But then they're also jealous because of some of the stuff that Joseph does. So, about the time he gets this jacket, he starts having dreams. Anybody in here ever have a dream? Yeah, I hope you do. Here's the other thing I hope you realize. In the Bible, the second most common way that God talks to people is in their dreams. And let me just tell you how medieval I am. I'm just medieval enough to believe that a lot of the times that when you and I have dreams, it's still God talking to us. It's not just pizza, okay? I mean, it could be pizza, but it might be God. Anyway, so about the time he gets this coat, Joseph starts having dreams, and he has two dreams. It's in Genesis 37. And the first dream he has is this one. He has a dream that he sees himself as a little stalk of wheat, And then he sees 11 other stalks of wheat around him and they all bow down. Now he shows up at family breakfast the next morning and he tells the family, guess what? I had this dream. I was a stalk of wheat and I was surrounded by 11 other stalks of wheat and they all bowed down to me. And immediately his brothers said, hey, what, what, we going to bow down to you? No, I think this is funny because a couple things. One, I think it's awesome how dream culture was so part of that of that time and that system that when he tells the dream he doesn't have to explain them what it means everybody knows what it means like we're going to bow down to joseph i also think it's funny because this upends the patriarchal system that was so firmly rooted in that time and place see at that time it was the firstborn son who should have been the leader but in the life of joseph we have this continuing biblical theme or this continuing biblical narrative that it's the younger who ends up ruling over the older. I have a feeling that this is exactly where Jesus gets his sayings, like the first will be last and the last will be first, right? Like Jesus isn't just pulling this stuff out of the air. He's taking this stuff in. Anyway, then he has another dream. And it's like the first, but it's slightly different. Joseph has this dream. He dreams that he's a star and that there's these 11 other stars and they all bow down before him. But then in addition to those stars, the sun and the moon also bow down. And so Joseph gets up the next morning and he tells everybody at the family table, he tells them this dream. And now not only are his brothers, uh, are his brothers upset with him, but now his mother and father are upset with him because they obviously, they're the sun and the moon, right? Instantly. So there's this jealousy thing happening. Well, they were goat herders. There's another detail. His family's goat and sheep herders and the sons are out herding sheep, but Joseph stays at home because his father loves him. But then at a certain point, his father becomes a little concerned about the brothers. I mean, they've been gone for a while. And this is pretty normal because they're nomads and you have to take your flocks to where the grass is. And so he says to Joseph, you know what? I haven't heard from your brothers in a day or two. You need to go out and find them. Make sure everything's okay. So Joseph goes on a journey instantly. He's leaving home, right? And try to find his brothers. Takes him a while, finally finds them. On his way, on his way, when he's 
far off, just a little speck in the sky, one of his brothers recognizes who's coming and he gets his other brothers together and he says, look, here comes that dreamer. Here's what we should do. Let's kill him, right? Let's kill him. This is our chance. Dad's nowhere around. There's no one out here. It's just us. I'm sick of this guy. Let's kill him. Well, one of the brothers was mostly in agreement, but not quite in agreement and said, well, hey, you know what? We don't have to kill him. We don't have to kill him. The blood would be on our hands. Look, I found a pit. Let's just throw him in the pit and then we'll leave and he'll die, but it won't be our fault. I know you think I just made that part up. I didn't. It's actually in the Bible. This was, this was their logic. So they throw Joseph in a pit and they intend on leaving. But, but while they're still there with him, they've beat him up and they've taken his coat off of him and he's in a pit. And then all of a sudden, this, this little caravan of, of nomadic traveling tribesmen comes through. And one of the brothers says, you know, we shouldn't leave him there. Here's what we should do. Let's sell him. Like, like, what's the good of killing him? We could make a dollar off of him, right? And we could get rid of him at the same time. This is perfect. And so they sold their own brother into slavery. And they took some goat's blood and they put it on the coat and they took it back to their dad and they told him that he was dead and they shipped him off to Egypt and they sold him for some silver. Guess who else in the Bible got sold for silver? Jesus. Yeah, Joseph is an archetype of Jesus. Anyway, so then Joseph's in Egypt and he gets sold into a man's house and the man's house is named Potiphar. Everybody remember Potiphar? I like to imagine that Potiphar was fat. I'm not saying that he was, but it just seems like that he should be with a name like Potiphar, right? Little, little Potiphar, you know? Anyway, he gets sold into Potiphar. I'm not, I don't know if that's true. I just, I like to imagine that. He gets sold into little Potiphar's house, you know, jolly Potiphar. And he does really well there. In fact, Potiphar recognizes there's something about Joseph. And this is interesting. Uh, Joseph doesn't let his crappy place in life, like, hold him down. It's, it's the weirdest thing. And this is doubly weird because anybody who's ever been their father's favorite and anybody who's ever had their father's love, and not only his father's love, but their father's like riches lavished on them, usually when difficulty comes on that person, they don't thrive. Usually they wilt. Why? Because they've never had to experience anything. But Joseph is the opposite. He gets beat up by his brothers, has his coat stolen, gets sold into slavery at Potiphar's house. And while he's there, he actually thrives. And Potiphar's like, this guy is amazing. He puts him in charge of the whole house. Another little detail. Apparently, Joseph was hot. I think, I think if I understand the ancient Hebrew, and I don't, <laughs> but I think if I understand the ancient Hebrew, Joseph didn't just have a six-pack, he had an eight-pack. And, and this is possible, he had those two little abs that are right here, those lower ones. And um, apparently, Potiphar's wife noticed, and she's like, you know what? Potiphar's a fat little guy, he's a jolly little guy, and Joseph is hot, he's got eight abs, I want to sleep with him. And she says to Joseph, you're amazing, I would really like to sleep with you. And he's like, no, not really my thing. Probably shouldn't do that because I'm just here as a slave. Don't want to dishonor the master. And this goes on for a little bit, but then eventually she makes her, well, she makes her demands known in a brand new way and she just comes out naked, you know? And at this point, Joseph runs off. 
right? He just runs off. And while he's gone, because he spurned Potiphar's wife, she gets angry, puts her cloak back on. She makes up this story. Hey, Joseph tried to rape me. And so Potiphar becomes angry and has him thrown into prison. Let me tell you, the one place you don't want to be is ancient Egyptian prison. So he's back in the dungeon. He meets some people there. Meets the king's cupbearer. Meets all these little cast of characters. And again, Joseph doesn't let him get it down. Doesn't let it get him down. And so he's there and he's utterly forgotten. And this, he's probably living in this jail, maybe for years, by the way. Okay, And while he's there, the dream thing starts happening again. One of the guys he's in jail with has a dream, and he doesn't know what it means. But Joseph's like, man, this is easy. I can tell you exactly what it means. So he interprets it. Anyway, long story short, part of the dream is that he's going to get out of jail. And sure enough, that guy gets out of jail, just like Joseph's interpretation. And he goes back to being the king's cupbearer. Well, while he's the king's cupbearer, that means like he's the guy who takes the king his food and takes the king his water, and he drinks whatever the king's going to drink to make sure no one poisoned him. Can you imagine? What a great job. (laughs) You drink it first, right? Okay, he's not dead. Okay, I'm in. Well, anyway, he's back in the presence of the king again, and the king has a dream. Pharaoh has a dream, and no one can tell him what it means. And Pharaoh gets all of his magicians and all of his sorcerers and says, tell me the meaning of the dream. No one knows. And then the cupbearer guy is like, I I hate to interrupt, but it's probably a long shot. But when I was in jail, like when you threw me in jail, uh, I hate to bring that up again, sorry. But there was a guy there, and he was really good with dreams. I think you should ask him. And so Pharaoh said, get him. And so they get Joseph, and Pharaoh tells him the dream. And Joseph says, this is easy. Here's the meaning of the dream. You're going to have seven years of plenty. You're going to have seven years of abundance on top of abundance. And then after that, you're going to have seven years of famine. And everything that you had saved up from the seven years of abundance is going to be eaten up in the seven years of famine. You better get ready. That's what Joseph tells him. And for whatever reason, Pharaoh actually believes him, takes him out of jail and says, you interpreted the dream, you're in charge. And so Joseph ends up with authority in Egypt. And he does such a great job with authority that he keeps on rising up the ranks. He just takes everything that Pharaoh has and he multiplies it. And he multiplies it. And he multiplies it. The land, the grain, the farming, the cattle, the sheep. Joseph, he's destroying it, man. He's amazing. He's just causing it to flourish. Everything is flourishing underneath him to the point that Joseph becomes second in command in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. Now, this is when the story gets really interesting. Because for seven years, there's abundance. And then sure enough, in the eighth year, the famine hits. And it is bad. And it's not just bad in Egypt, but it's bad all over the land. So bad that even people up in Israel, up in Canaan land, they're starving to death. And guess who's left up in Israel? Joseph's brothers and his father and his mother. And his father sends some of his sons down to Egypt to see if they can buy grain. And guess who they meet when they get to Egypt? They meet Joseph. They meet Joseph. And let me just tell you, maybe, maybe one of the best moments in all of Scripture is when Joseph meets his brothers and they are essentially begging for grain and they don't know who he is. And he looks at them and he says the most amazing, one of the most amazing things in the whole Bible. He says, all the things that you meant for evil, 
God is meant for good. Here we are. Right? I mean, he could have had him thrown in jail. He could have had him beaten up. He could have... He could have maimed them. He could have branded them. He could have whipped them. He could have killed them. He could have done anything he wanted. But he says, what you meant for evil, God has meant for good. Salvation has come to your house. Go get my dad. And let me tell you right now, I have the best land in Egypt. And Pharaoh has told us we can have it. We can settle in it. And everything's going to be okay. Right? Amazing story. Except that's not the end of it. Because they live there and they flourish and they do really well. And I want to read you one thing. Right before Joseph dies, he tells his sons this amazing thing. He says, essentially, I'm going to die here. I'm, I'm, I'm going to die here in Egypt. But he says, you have to promise me one thing. He says, promise me that on the day that the Lord remembers we're here, and on the day that the Lord takes us back home, he says, promise me you'll take my bones and bury them in the land of my father. Amazing. Right? Generations go by. They're in slavery. Over 400 years. No one remembers Joseph. And then the Lord speaks to Moses. Right? And Moses speaks to Pharaoh. And all the plagues and everything. And Pharaoh is letting the children of Israel go. And I want to read you something now out of Exodus. This is Exodus chapter 13 verse 17. He says this. When Pharaoh finally let the people go. God did not lead them along the main road that runs through Philistine territory. Let me just tell you, God will almost never lead you along the main road. Okay? Even though it was the shortest route through the promised land, God said if the people were faced with battle, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So so God led them in a roundabout way. Through the wilderness, towards the Red Sea. Thus the Israelites left Egypt like an army ready for battle. Verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him For Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear to do this. And he said, God will certainly come to help you. And when he does, you must take my bones with you from this place. He makes some promise that they'll take him back. Because that's how deep-seated the desire to go home is inside of us. You leave home and you want to go back. I want to share just a couple things with you this morning about leaving home and coming back. One of the really unique things about this story I just told you is that Joseph's story represents leaving home and returning, but in a really unusual way. In the case of Joseph, neither is leaving nor is returning were his choice. Uh, They were things that were completely and totally out out of his control. It's really weird to me how much of our lives are this odd combination of things that are squarely within our control and then things that are not in our control. And here's the unique thing about that. Most of us are only able to see one of those realities. Most people's hardware in here is built to either see uh, we, we have choice and we have control and our choices matter and we're free agents in the world and we can do what we want and, and if we make good choices, then good things happen. You know, there's that. And then, then there's this other thing of, like, gosh, there's so many things we are not in control of. And if you're sort of a religious person, 
you tend to check that box and you say, well, these are things that God is in control of, right? Uh, the truth is, it's some weird combination of the two and it's almost indecipherable, but usually you and I get stuck in one of those two frames. And so if you're sort of a charismatic Christian, newsflash here at the Vineyard, we're sort of charismatic. If you're charismatic, for the most part, you just, you just live within the frame of we have a choice and choices matter. And, and here's basically why charismatics live within that frame for the most part. They, we live within that frame because we believe that God has given us the Spirit and where the Spirit is, there's power. And if we've been given power, then the only thing left is choice. So let's just make good choices and get on with it, right? And there's, there's some truth to that, but I, I just want to tell you that it's not the whole truth. But then there's this other side over here, and it's that God chooses. Like, there's a sense in which God is the one who's running the show. And this is where our Reformed brothers sort of come in. Uh, they have what we might call a high view of God's sovereignty. And, and so uh, the reaction there is, well, you know, it's God's call, and we'll just sit back and let Him work it out. And these are gross generalizations, but they're not... In, it's not that far off. But, but in the case of Joseph, it's so instructive for us because it's a weird combination of the two. But Joseph's leaving and his returning, not his choice. And I would just like to say for everybody in the room that there are leavings and there are returnings that are not our choice. Some of us are going to go on spiritual journeys and we're going to, we're going to go down paths and they're going to be paths we didn't want to go down. That, that, that there's going to be an invisible hand behind us pushing us in places that we, that we didn't want to go, that we would definitely prefer to avoid. For instance, last week we had that little flood here, right? Apparently it was like really bad in town. I only live seven miles away. It was the same storm at my house. I mean, the same system, I should say. Uh, it was the same weather event. But at my house, it was really not a big deal. I mean, we had rain, it was, and it even rained hard, but it was nothing like it was here. So what it was here was different than it was my house, but it's the same storm. This is a great picture for understanding some of these things. Sometimes, sometimes the winds of God blow upon us, and they blow upon all of us, but sometimes the force lands on one or two persons' lives in ways that are unusual and puts them down paths they never thought they would go. I hope that's a helpful image. And that's the same thing that I think happens with Joseph. For instance, Joseph didn't choose to be born. How many of you know you didn't choose to be born either? You happened. This is one of the reasons that ultimately, I do believe in a world where there's free will, but there's a thing that sits above free will and it's God's choice because no one chose to be born. Furthermore, you didn't choose your parents and you didn't choose the time or place that you were born. Here we are, right? Someone else has done this. Joseph didn't choose to be born. He didn't choose to have dreams. He didn't choose to be his father's favorite. All of these winds blew upon him, and they blew upon him quite forcefully. I'm also convinced they blew upon his brothers as well, but in a different measure, and the measure changed the story. In fact, this is where it gets very interesting. Joseph was highly favored by his father, not his choice. But Joseph was obedient. That is his choice. So he's favored, and he is obedient and here's the end result of being highly favored and obedient. It got him beat up and thrown into a hole. Right? We do the math that favor should yield greater control to us. But the truth is, it rarely ever does. Some of us like to talk about being God's favorite. Especially certain charismatic circles. They love to talk about being, oh, I'm God's favorite. You know, and you're God's favorite and we're all God's favorite. 
And it just it becomes a little bit banal. I mean, if I'm being honest, you know, I'm God's favorite. I'm like, dude, you don't even know what you're talking about. There's two favorite sons in the Bible, Joseph and Jesus, and both of them got beat up and killed almost. So let's just talk about this for a second. What does it mean to be God's favorite, huh? It is a serious, serious thing. Furthermore, Joseph was obedient and he ends up sold off a slave in Egypt. So part of what it means sometimes to be God's favorite is it means that there's a really difficult journey ahead and everything that we would naturally choose is the opposite. So, one of the words that I would apply to Joseph and his life, his story, is the word surrender. Surrender. Some things came his way and some things came his direction that were so the opposite of what any of us would naturally choose that the only response that's reasonable in life-giving is one of surrender. Greater surrender. I actually believe this is one of the things that leaving and coming home is supposed to do to us when it comes to our spiritual journeys like when we take spiritual journey and we leave home and we come back i believe that's supposed to develop a greater surrender in us that's what we see in joseph i know one of the things that we're more comfortable with than the idea of surrender the truth is most of us in here don't like the idea of surrender i'll just be honest with you i don't i think it stings it's real I just happen to think it stinks. What we, what we like more than surrender is the idea of sacrifice. You know, especially Americans, we love the idea of sacrifice. And here's why we love the idea of sacrifice over surrender. Because, because sometimes I don't mind giving something up, especially when it's in my power to make that choice, because then I can play the role of being the one who sacrifices. It, it reinforces even in a losing way that I'm the one who is in control and I have the power. Surrender, you get none of that. Surrender, surrender is that thing at the bottom of the barrel and it's that realization at the very bottom of the barrel where you and I wake up to the fact that the truth is we don't have anything to bring to the table. Here's what it is. Sometimes surrender, especially Joseph's kind of surrender, it looks like Getting everything wrong. It looks like doing everything right and then getting everything wrong. Sometimes for years. But here's the good news. The good news is that the journey of surrender, while it seems to take us so far away, it's where we end up meeting God. This is a really interesting thing in Joseph's story. In fact, I'd love for you to read it this week. Joseph's story starts in Genesis 37. And from the very beginning in Genesis 37, Joseph is favored, has the best clothes, has his father's love, has everything he needs. He has his family. He has a home. He has security. He is cared for in every way. Not only that, but in Genesis 37, Joseph has dreams. So in addition to his natural care that he gets, Joseph always has the, also has the favor of heaven and he has divine revelation. And guess, guess what word never comes out of Joseph's mouth when he has all of this stuff in Genesis 37? It's the word God. The word God never proceeds from the mouth of Joseph. In fact, if you do a little word search or if you just read your Bible and Watch really carefully. Joseph never says the word God or Lord. It never proceeds from his mouth until he is in Potiphar's house as a slave. Isn't that interesting? 
See, one of the things that happens to us as we go on spiritual journeys, especially if the Spirit is pushing us in directions that we would rather not go, it seems like we're going further away from home, but we end up meeting God. When Joseph is a slave, when he is far from his home, after he's been beat up, after he's been sold, after his brothers have abandoned him, that's when God consciousness, in a brand new way, comes to Joseph And it ends up coming out of his mouth. And when Joseph in Genesis chapter 39 verse 19 says the word God for the first time, after that, he never quits talking about God. It's like it just opens up. So in the very place where we feel the most abandoned is where we end up meeting God. And because of that, Joseph becomes an outpost of hope for others. So Joseph's life becomes a a Uh, a space that other people can experience the goodness and the kindness of God. Here's what I mean by that. If If you zoom out on Joseph's life really wide, what you see is he goes from his father's house to Egypt, but then everyone else comes, right? And so there's a sense in which Joseph is a pioneer. There's a sense in which Joseph is a scout, or he's the advanced troop, and he goes... First, and he endures a lot of difficulty, but the difficulty is that his family might not have to endure those things, and that they might live in the blessing that he has found and that he has opened up. This is this is this is also true of your journey and my journey. Like when we follow God, and especially when it becomes difficult, and especially when we feel pressed and we feel abandoned, but we end up meeting God. All of those moments, all of those actions, every bit of that is meant to be an outpost of hope because there's other people coming. So even now, like whoever it is in here that's experiencing some difficulty, especially if it's difficulty that's a result of actually trying to be obedient to Jesus, here's what I can absolutely tell you. There are other people behind you coming. There are other people who need what you've gone through. They need you to open up the path. They need you to show them that this is not a dead end, that God is not unfaithful, that He doesn't leave people uh, dead in Egypt, that He doesn't leave people behind, that He doesn't forget about people, and you don't have to die in Potiphar's house. This is the good news. Last little thing. Joseph eventually makes it back to the land of his fathers, but it's in a box of bones. And part of what this tells us is, sometimes we don't make it back. There are some journeys that we go on with God, and there's no guarantee that we're going to make it back in our lifetime. In fact, I'm convinced more and more that the most significant journeys that you and I go on, the one... The, the one big journey that we're really called to go on is probably a journey we won't make. We won't make it all the way back in this lifetime. It's something that's bigger than that. Joseph died in Egypt. He died in Egypt, but he asked that his bones would be taken back. And here's the good news. They actually were. They were. And it's an Old Testament picture that I believe everybody in this room is going to live out. I believe it's something we're living out right now. And, and part of what the image 
suggests is this. It, it suggests that our truest home isn't here. Your, your truest home, it's, it's actually not here. And I'm not just talking about the vineyard. I'm talking about like here. This place, this, this, this planet as it is. This isn't our truest home. And this isn't me being sentimental either. I come to believe, especially through the story of Joseph, that your home and my home, the truest home, the one from which we actually really came, is a place that we can't go ourselves. It's a place we have to be taken. Someone will have to take us. Someone will have to take us. There's an ache in your heart, and sometimes it's, it's almost unnameable. There's a, there's a thing that's in us that's it's almost unsayable. It's an ache for a place. And that place does exist, but it's not a place that you can go to. It's a place you have to be taken. Now, here's the good news. I think we know the guy who's going to take us. Jesus is going to take our bones. And let me just tell you something. I'm not speaking metaphorically here. He's going to take your actual bones. And he's going to take them all the way back home. And here's the really even better news. He will not leave behind even one tibia. Not one phalange. Is this a phalange? Tarsal. I'm, patella. Sternum. We've exhausted all the bones I know. Phibia. He will not leave back one bone. The Son of God is going to raise us up. And just like Joseph was carried out of Egypt and into the promised land, God is one day going to carry us out of Egypt and into the promised land. This is the good news. This is the good news. Everybody here is on a journey. And the good news is we will not be left behind. Amen? Amen. Hey, if you're on the ministry team this morning, come on up. Thank you again for stopping by the podcast at the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening here at the Vineyard, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Until next time, peace to you.